If you would turn to Luke 17, Luke chapter 17, and I pray, beloved, as we approach the word, um, it just feels there's a kind of a a deadness to our worship right now, uh, that our hearts are not really uh, present. Um, I don't tell you that much, but I just kind of feel that. So I pray now as as we open the word and as we pray that we would really dive in with all our hearts and with all our minds with all our energies to really focus on what we hear from God. Uh, We are addressing the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is not to be approached lightly, but with reverence and power. Uh, So we we need to have our worship uh, fixed with his spirit. Uh, So I pray now as we hear God's holy word that we would be uh, changed uh, by it. Hear God's word, Luke chapter 17, starting in the first verse all the way through verse 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you should say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would, be, it would obey you. Will any of you who, say, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come into the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. God, you are deserving of all our praise. You are deserving of all our worship. You are deserving of all glory. God, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God, as we approach your holy throne, we want to do so with reverence. And yet so often, God, we are fixed upon ourselves, God. We are fixed upon our own sins. So God, we ask that you would forgive us of the sins of this day, the sins of this past week. We confess them freely to you. God, how we have focused too much on ourselves, too much on our own comforts and not on the the needs of those around us. God, we ask that you would fix our, our attention to the glory of God in the, in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord, that we would see that we have been f- totally and freely forgiven of our sins. And God, we pray that you would help us forgive those who have sinned against us, God, that you would work your spirit in the hearts of your people, that we would have a, a spirit of forgiveness and grace come upon us. God, you are so good to us. Father, we lift up those in our congregation who are sick, the various brothers and sisters struggling from cancer and various health needs. God, we pray for those who are struggling with depression, Father, who are discouraged. We pray that you would meet them with your grace, that you would show them that you will never leave them nor forsake them, and that you love them in the face of Christ. God, we pray for uh, the nations. We pray specifically this morning for our Iraqi brothers and sisters, God, God, who are being systematically exterminated, Father. 
by the ISIS. God, we pray that you would give them strength, God, that they would not abandon you. God, when they feel that they have been forsaken, God, when they cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us, that they would look upon Jesus who was forsaken and they would rejoice insofar as they share in the sufferings of Christ, God, that they were created for a better world, a world that will never be shaken. Dear God, I pray that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them. God, we do pray for peace in that land. God, we pray that you would show your might. So many times we read in the scripture, you say, for the sake of my name, I will act. For the sake of my glory, I will act. So God, for the sake of your name and your glory, we pray that you would act in the Middle East. Show your sovereign power that the nations would step back and say, do you see how great our God is? God, I pray that you would do that, that you would bring your wrath to bear on those doing evil and you would bring your righteousness to bear on your people. God, we pray also for our community, for our community across this city who are going to hear the gospel this morning. We pray for Tom Tucker at Sisk Memorial Baptist Church this morning. We pray that as he steps to the pulpit and preaches, God, that he preaches the pure gospel. God, that the people are changed by the preaching of the word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we we pray now for our own hearts as we approach your word. God, we pray for your spirit to speak to us, God. God, we come desperate for you, desperate to hear a word from you, God. God, awaken us, awaken us by the power of your spirit to believe, to trust your word. God, I pray that through the preaching of your word that you would allow us to lay aside our preferences, that we would not seek our own way, but the the way of Christ, that we would love you and love our neighbor as you have called us to do. So God, I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase. God, I pray that as we open your word, that you would allow us to, to heed, to heed your correction, to train us in righteousness. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, middle school is a very awkward time for children. Uh, children start to experience a lot of change with their body as they transition to adulthood. Uh, inevitably, there's always one or two children who are taller than everybody else. Uh, they hit their growth spurt early and they tower over their classmates. The, the challenge of hitting their growth spurt early is that their coordination doesn't always come with their growth. They are tall and encouraged to play sports like volleyball or basketball, but they lack the coordination to be of much good. And I'd say in many ways, believers are like overgrown middle schoolers. Our Christian coordination does not match up to our Christian calling. We have been declared holy, righteous, and perfect in Jesus Christ, and yet we stumble and fall as we try to grow into our new identity in Christ. See, now the best thing about middle school is that it ends. <laughs> Amen? Well, the best thing about our growth into our new identities in Christ never end. We will always be growing up to be like Jesus Christ himself. We are alive. In Christ, and therefore we will grow. That which is alive will always grow. But we are never called to grow alone. 
we have been given the gift of the body of Christ, the church, so that we could grow up in to Christ. Now Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, that gifts were given to the church for the, to help them grow. Listen to what it says. To help them grow until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by dis- in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The goal of the Christian life and the goal of the church is that we would grow up into him who is the head, into Christ Jesus himself. Always be growing into Christ. He wants us to grow and he wants us to grow together. So we're going to, I should say this, we are, we were planning to look at three exhortations from this text, but in my preparation I got through one. Uh, So we're going to break this into a two-part series and we're looking at one exhortation we don't have the PowerPoint, so it's going to be very simple. There's going to be one point today. That's right, one point for an entire sermon. Let's see if I can finish on time. We want to grow together in love. Grow together in love. Very simple. Look again with me at verses 1 through 4. That's all we're going to look at today. Luke 17, 1 through 4. Now, this is on the back. Remember, we talked about last week, Jesus speaking about the rich man and Lazarus, about the the consequences for living for ourselves in this life rather than for the sake of others and the dangers of eternal judgment. The next three little sections don't really have a rhyme or reason, not necessarily connected to the earlier part. They're almost like Proverbs because they, they stand alone. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples now, not to the Pharisees. In chapter 17, verse 1. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. I think this section has two aspects in which we're called to grow in love. First, we're called to grow together in love by not tempting others to sin. And secondly, we call to grow in love by forgiving others when they repent of their sins. Both aspects are vital for a healthy, growing community of disciples which we have here. So we're going to look at that first point. How do, how do we, let's examine how to grow in not tempting others to sin. He starts with his exhortation by reminding all of us that temptations are sure to come. In our fallen world, we will never be free from temptation. Temptation is the strong urge or desire to do something wrong or unwise. And we all experience temptations. There's never a point in your Christian life, even if you've been walking for Jesus for 50 years, that you will not 
face temptation. Even Jesus Christ himself experienced temptation while on earth. Hebrews Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because Jesus Christ overcame temptation, we read in Hebrews 2.18, because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God never says you won't be tempted. He says, you come to me who has overcome temptation and I will help you. He's able to sympathize with us. He was made like us in every respect, yet he never fell to temptation. So through faith, we have been given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus to fight and overcome temptation. That being said, we're still going to face temptation. But here's the deal. We must avoid causing others to be tempted to sin. Jesus gives a strong warning of those who bring temptations to others. Anytime Jesus uses the word, whoa, that is not like Joey Lawrence from Blossom back in the day, whoa, right? That is not that kind of whoa. It is whoa. There is is a warning here. There's a warning that we must listen to. Listen to the second half of that verse again. Woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and you cast into the sea that he should cause little ones to sin. Jesus says it's better for you to die now than to lead people to sin. We should not think of these little ones merely as children, but those little ones in God, which include adults. The image is very clear. Death is at stake. It is better for you to die. That's why he says, pay attention to yourselves. It's a very clear exhortation. And this is crucial to the life of the church. Jesus is challenging us to love our neighbors more than ourselves. If we do not pay attention to ourselves, we may be leading others into sin, which hurts both them and us. This is not a light matter. Jesus says there are eternal consequences at hand. Do you see how Jesus just talked about that in the rich man and Lazarus? How you live could bring people to Christ or push them away from Christ. Now, how does that function in the body of Christ? So I think in order to understand what this means to pay attention to ourselves, we should heed a similar exhortation in 1 Timothy 4, 16, which says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Holy Spirit encourages us to keep a close watch or to pay attention to two categories, to our teaching, our doctrine, and our way of life, our lifestyle. So I believe you can lead people into temptation by encouraging them to sin by what you believe and by how you live. By what you believe and by how you live. If you believe and teach something contrary to the Scriptures, you are leading people to sin. You are leading people then to defy God. 
The Scripture says it will be able to make us wise unto salvation. But if you don't pay attention to the Word of God, you are becoming ignorant of salvation. See, false teaching always creates false converts. And false converts have false hope and a false Savior. So we must pay careful attention to our doctrine. We must know the Bible. This is why, as long as I'm your pastor, every service that we have is going to be grounded in the Word of God. It's about teaching and instructing from the Word of God so that we can learn and and, and grow from it. Now, if you're here visiting, right, just trying to check out the church, we're glad that you're here. You know, have you ever wondered why Christians love the gospel so much? Why do Christians want to meet three, four, five times a week to hear about the gospel, the, the message again and again and again? And I would just say this, for us as Christians, it is quite simply the greatest news ever told. It is the greatest news we would We would love to hear it again and again because it is the best. The Bible says that we are dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins without hope and without God. Now, we deserve eternal death against our rebellion against the eternal God. Yet while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He died for us. Think about that. Jesus died for us us. I think about my sin, I think about my struggles, and I realize that my God stepped out of glory and died for me. Don't you love that? Don't you love to hear it again and again and again? It is the greatest news ever heard, because after he died, he rose again, giving all us us hope of of a future inheritance. And a, new, a new life, eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Now, this good news is only revealed in the Bible. So we must pay attention to our doctrine. Because if we get the wrong good news, the wrong news, it ceases to be good and it ceases to give people eternal life and forgiveness of sins. There are churches in America that don't teach how people can be saved according to the Bible. There are churches that I'm sure your family members go to or friends, I use quotes there, who do not teach the Scriptures. This is why Paul says, implores Timothy, watch your teaching. Watch what you're listening to. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, the the, the excuse I get a lot of people, they don't go to church. Some people say, well, I don't need the church, um, you know, to be a Christian. I'm just really confused because Paul says this in, in, in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I urge you, right, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead by his kingdom and his appearing to preach the word. If God makes that clear in the New Testament, right, that you should preach the word in view of God and Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. Don't you think the same thing applies? You should do everything you can to hear that word? That you should, I, I charge you, church, in view of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, by his, who is going to judge the living and the dead, by his kingdom and high, by his appearing, hear the word. We must hear the word. Because if we don't, we may not be saved. 
we may believe in a false hope and a false savior and therefore have no salvation. This is why Jesus says it's better for you to die than to teach people false truth. It's a strong rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although doctrine is very important, it is not the only way we can lead people into sin. Uh, I think that the, the, sometimes even the greater passages is that uh, we lead people into sin by endorsing behavior based on what we do with our lives, by what we watch, by what we practice, in people into sin. So let me give you four scripture passages that help me govern my lifestyle, right? How I should live. Now, all of scripture is useful for that, but for example, there's a lot of media out there, whether it's music, books, television, movies, you know, what do I watch? Because we want to be careful with our own lifestyle so that we don't lead others into sin. So there's four scriptures I want to just kind of briefly touch on that maybe help frame your thinking about this. Uh, Romans 1.32, uh, Philippians 4.8-9, Matthew 22, 36-40, and Romans 14.19. Now, if, I ever, if you ever miss something that I say on a Sunday morning, I uh, post all my messages online. You can listen to them uh, online, or you can get a, a printout or look at the blog and read everything that I said. So if you just want to listen, that's fine. You can always go back and reference it. Um, well, let's look at this briefly, Romans 1.32. It says this, though they knew God's decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 1, 18-32 is a laundry list of sins that God hates. Anything from disobedience to parents to murder, inventing evil. But then it ends with this verse in, in verse 32, where God's people who know that those who practice those kind of sins deserve to die, they not only do them themselves, but also give approval to those who practice them. So a simple question. Do the television shows, movies, books, and social media you consume give approval to what God hates? If it does, I'd ask you to repent. And to change your practices based on the next verse, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Give all the things that you think about the Philippians 4, 8, and 9 test. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So do your activities and media pass the Philippians 4, 8, and 9 test. We are commanded to think about things that are pure, lovely, noble, praiseworthy. So notice the promise at the end of that verse. If you think about these things, the God of peace will be with you. So, is it worth is it worth it to skip some form of entertainment so that you will be able to obtain the presence of the peace of God the God of peace Matthew 22:26 through 40 now let me just stop here you notice that I'm not telling you what behaviors to stop doing I'm asking you to consider what you're doing 
I think too often what we do is we, we create a rule and a line. Don't do this. But when you do that, you don't teach people the why. You have to process it in your own heart, what is pure, what is lovely, what is noble, what is praiseworthy. Because you have to think about such things so that you can have the presence of the God of peace. And if you don't think about it, but you just follow rule, you don't have the presence of the God of peace because you don't think about things that are pure and noble and lovely and praiseworthy. Does that make sense? Next verse, Matthew 22, 26 through 40. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of life can be seen through those two lenses. How does fill in the blank help me love God? And how does fill in the blank help me love my neighbor? If these are the two greatest commandments, we should work with all that we have to obey them. How does that Facebook or Twitter post show my love for my neighbors? Does it show a love for God? How does my criticism of the government, of the church, or my spouse show love to my neighbors and my love for God? Two simple questions can revolutionize how we live and can protect you from leading others to sin. Is this loving towards God? Is this loving towards God? Two, is this loving towards my neighbors? Is this loving towards my neighbors? Romans 14, 13, and 19 Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindering, hindrance in the way of a brother. So let, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is really an application that Paul makes of to, to love your, your neighbor. Paul provides the principle that we will choose to lay down my freedoms, the freedoms that I have in Christ, for the sake of my brother's because I don't want to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in their way, causing them to sin. Now, as Christians, we should desire peace and mutual upbuilding more than anything else, for we are called to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Unity is not optional. It is so important that God wants you to lay down your rights so that others will not be tempted into sin. Love does not seek its own way. Now, the principles of these verses are extremely important for the life of our church, how we function properly in growing up in love into him who is the head. It says, pay attention to yourselves. You notice what it says there? It doesn't say, pay attention to your neighbor. What? I have to look at myself first? Pay attention to your doctrine and your way of life, because if, if you don't, you may lead others into sin. And if you lead others to sin, knowingly or unknowingly, Jesus says it would be better for you to, if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea. Now, we must grow in love together. Now, here's the challenge for our church. Uh, we are a very diverse congregation. We come from different generations and different cultures. Now, there are some who would desire more reverence and more formality in our service in regards to dress and demeanor. While there are others who desire a more informal 
and casual approach. So the question is, how are we going to grow together in love if we come with all sorts of different preferences and expectations of each other? The key is in Jesus' words. Pay attention to yourselves. Ask, how does my dress love my neighbor? How does the time that I arrive at church love my neighbor? How does the way I greet people love my neighbor? How does the way I feel, how does the way I sing love my neighbor? How does my attitude towards others who do not do what I approve of show my love for my neighbor? As we come together in worship, we have to fight for unity. You know, it, it, it is challenging and it is difficult. And if it is going to happen, you know how it's going to happen? By the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have unity, people different cultures and different generations, it has to be because we believe in the same God, the same Lord, the same Spirit. So as we come together in worship, let's pay attention to ourselves and seek to build others up in Christ through our words and deeds. Amen? The second aspect of love is to forgive those who repent of their sin. To forgive those who repent of their sin. Now we know temptations are going to come and people are going to sin. We have to fight on the front end not to to help and lead others to sin, but we also have to fight on the back end and forgive those who sin against us. Look at what it says, the second half of that verse, after it says, pay attention to yourself. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There are several principles that we can flesh out in those two verses on the view of forgiveness. First, it is the responsibility of the body of Christ to rebuke those who are in sin. It is the responsibility of the body of Christ to rebuke those who are in sin. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, in Matthew 18, a very similar exhortation is made, except the difference there is that if if your brother sins against you. Here, it's, it's if your brother sins. Rebuking those in sin is an act of love. This is how we grow together in love. Listen to James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering into sin, both in doctrine and in life, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Rebuking is an act of love because it can save people from death and destruction. Now, if Jesus tells us to rebuke others in sin, how do we avoid becoming a legalistic, police-sinning, or sin-policing church? First, we should invite others to rebuke and give us correction. We have to bring people into our life and allow them to speak to my life to rebuke and correct me. Second, We must pay attention to our own sins before we go to our brothers. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6, 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So we look at our own sin first, and then we go to our brothers and our sisters. We, we pay attention to ourselves and protecting our souls from wandering from the truth. Lastly, we remember our sin. We remember our sin. We remember the cross of Jesus Christ who paid for all our sin. We are sinners and, in need, and need a Savior. Jesus' blood was spilled. His body was crushed because of my sin. He had to die for me. And recognizing that Jesus had to die for me produces humility in my own heart and grace before I even go to speak to my brother who's in sin. So as we are changed by the love of God in Christ Jesus, we will bring that love to our rebukes, to our brothers and sisters. Now look what he says. We rebuke those in sin, and Jesus continues. Verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now notice the after our obligation to bring the sinner back to the truth, we are called to extend forgiveness to the repentant. Forgiveness is only extended is only given to the one who repents. Repentance is the change of one's mind about sin and turning back to God. It's an inner decision that always results in outward, concrete actions. True repentance will always show itself. If you are truly born again, it will show itself in your actions. Our forgiveness is called to model after God's forgiveness. Now let me just say this. What I'm about to say about forgiveness may sound weird at first um, because I think for so long our world has, has taught a therapeutic guide to forgiveness. Uh, therape- uh, forgiveness has never been about justice, never been about the cross. It's about making us feel better on the inside. So you may have been taught in years past maybe ways that the Scripture doesn't teach about forgiveness. So just bear with me if it doesn't sound right, just talk to me, right? Let's research this together. Uh, We have all sinned against God, and the only way that we have been forgiven is, is how? Is when we repent of our sin and put our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of God has no limits in repentance. In repentance, our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. We are completely and totally forgiven on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we still sin as believers, it grieves God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Yet, when we repent, it brings Him great joy and great gladness. God is always ready to forgive. He is standing at the door waiting to open. He's like that father in Luke 15, looking at the hill, waiting, seeing his son far off, and running to him. Right? He is always ready to forgive. That should be our heart. As God is always ready to forgive, that should be our heart towards forgiveness. If we have been wronged or sinned against, we have our arms open wide, ready to extend forgiveness. 
But the text says, if he repents, forgive him. That's the way God works. The problem is, let me just go here, let me read this. I don't want to miss something. We always must be ready to forgive. We can anxiously wait and long to extend forgiveness, but there must be repentance. Our world has confused forgiveness as many have in the church. We cannot offer unconditional forgiveness. Our world thinks that we should give forgiveness without repentance. But God doesn't give forgiveness without repentance. He extends the offer and is ready to forgive. But people must repent in order to have forgiveness. God offers conditional forgiveness on the basis of repentance. We always extend the offer, but people must repent. They must repent and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because that's how we model the forgiveness of God. Now, we all have an inherent sense of justice. So when people sin against us, our hearts cry out, Justice! Make this right, God! And He has given us that justice in the cross. We are able to forgive others when they repent because Jesus Christ has promised to give us justice either by applying His death to the repentant sinner or applying His wrath for eternity in hell. God will give justice. And here's the thing. If you offer unconditional forgiveness, you will cheapen God's justice by giving full forgiveness without repentance. Our hearts must be free from bitterness, free from anger or hatred towards the offending party. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Strive for peace with everyone, but for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and it may come, become defiled. God told you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. We love them by treating them with grace, mercy, and love and praying for their repentance. If we forgive the sinner without repentance, we are not modeling how God forgives. Then we do not understand God's readiness. But let me say this. Sorry. If we are embittered and full of hatred, saying that I don't have to extend forgiveness, then we do not understand God's readiness and the forgiveness of the cross of Christ to the sinner. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. Temptation and sin. Temptations are bound to come and sinners are going to sin. Yet God has called us to grow in love together. This can only happen when we grasp the great love of God in Christ Jesus. The love that I'm speaking about, forgiving those who sin against you, and having this cultivation and living in such a way for the good of our, our neighbors only can happen when we grasp the great love of God for us in Christ Jesus, how he gave up everything to redeem us from the darkness in this world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, for this reason, uh, we bow before you, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.